welcome to You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Today, we are talking about Gremlins with the great Jill Krajewski. I am one of your hosts, Alex Steed. I'll soon be joined by my tremendous co-host, Sarah Marshall. Gremlins is a 1984 American black comedy horror film directed by Joe Dante. It was written by Chris Columbus. It stars Zach Galligan and Phoebe Cates. It also features Howie Mandel's voice. Howie Mandel provides the voice of Gizmo. We'll talk about all this and more in this episode. And if you are not familiar with Jill, Jill is a writer, has bylines in Vulture and New York Magazine, Spin, Pitchfork, Vice, and more. She's also very funny. She is a comedian, a jokester, I, I suppose. And she runs Kids in the Hall No Context on Twitter, which is wonderful. If you're not already, you can follow us on Twitter and on Instagram at YouAreGoodPod. Please say hello. I want to thank so many of you uh, for sharing your stories about just how you celebrate the holidays. It was really nice to hear from y'all. Um, at least one of you talked about how you get together and read David Sedaris's The Santaland Diaries. And that one is big for me. I had a great English teacher who I believe I've mentioned on the show before. Miss Kent introduced me to the Santaland Diaries when I was just a wee boy. And then I was able to find it on This American Life. It, you know, it was huge. Loved the Santaland Diaries, particularly when I was a teen. I worked in a mall for a long time, so that one stuck with me. But it was really nice to hear from you and just get a peek into what celebrating the holidays with y'all is like. And I really appreciated everyone who reached out to do so. So thanks for doing that. We just had the great pleasure, uh, Sarah and I just had the great pleasure of going on American Hysteria with our great friend, Chelsea Weber-Smith. Love Chelsea so much. And we talked about where Hallmark movies and horror movies intersect. We talked about the movie Every Christmas Has a Story, which is a Lori Laughlin feature. And uh, we talked about Hello, Mary Lou, Prom Night 2, which is just a delightfully bonkers movie. We talked about them because the person who wrote Hello, Mary Lou is the person who wrote and directed Every Christmas as a Story and has written and directed many Hallmark features. So it was a super fun conversation. I loved it. I love doing anything with Chelsea. I love any conversation with Sarah in any format. So it was wonderful. I hope that you will check that out. It was good, good fun. And then I don't know if you've noticed, but we've released two episodes this week, two episodes. We've released this Gremlins episode and we've released a episode about while you were sleeping. So we were going to put out while you were sleeping as a bonus episode. And we have put out a director's cut of the while you were sleeping episode as a bonus episode. If you are a member of Patreon, if you are a, a subscriber on Apple podcast subscriptions, you'll get the long version of the conversation about while you were sleeping. But you know, we just know the holidays are fucking wild and maybe you needed some folks laughing and experiencing joy over the masterpiece that is while you are sleeping. So you can check that out in the feed with Laura Lippman, or if you support us on Patreon or Apple podcast subscriptions, thank you so much for doing so. You get bonus episodes like 
the while you were sleeping extended cut or in any other month, just an episode that other people uh, aren't able to listen to. So thanks to everyone who does support us on Patreon and on Apple podcast subscriptions. And just thank you for being here generally. So enjoy the bonus episode or go over to those services and get a longer sort of more sprawling version of said bonus episode. All right. I think that's it. I'm pretty sure that's all you need to know right now. How's it going in your world? How are the holidays? Do not forget in all of the hubbub love this wild time. You, my friend, are good. Let's talk about gremlins. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. How are you doing, Sarah? <sighs> Alex, we have just watched the movie in the world with my favorite piece of movie scoring in it, comma, non-Danny Elfman category. <laughs> and that piece of music is The Gremlin's Rag by Carrie Goldsmith. How's it go, Sarah? It goes... And this like they tease it for the first hour and then they really bust out with it at like an hour and three minutes when Dick Miller gets attacked by his own tractor. It's really fabulous. And they just bust out with it at, you know, 10 out of 10 volume and you're like, cinema, you know? They bust out a 10 out of 10 volume and then it just never stops. Like that's just happening the entire rest of the movie. I love, I had forgotten how much I love this movie. Yeah. Like this, this in Ghostbusters and Batman. It's so fucking weird. Totally. And then think actually, now that I think about that, you just remarked upon the non Danny Elfman. Those were the three. And then the Ninja Turtles movie. Let's forget about that. But the scores of all three of these movies were tremendous. And then the Ghostbusters song was, oh, what a good time for all of that. Anyway, before we go deep there, we should introduce our guest. Can you please reveal yourself? Who are we watching Gremlins with today? With Stripe. (laughs) No, just kidding. I'm human. That's great. Hi, everyone. I'm Jill. This is Jill Krajewski, normal human woman, writer, joker, webby winner. Uh, You've seen my culture writing in Vulture, Spin, Pitchfork, on Twitter. Yeah, I'm just addicted to being online, man. (laughs) <laughs> and you you also one of the ways that you're online relates to the kids in the hall mm. yes i also run kids in the hall no context and it's it's wild to me that no one set up a no context account for uh my toronto heroes yet uh so i took it upon myself as a woman in her early 30s to do the job that no man had set out to do Jill, this world being pretty small, I wonder if you ever encountered, (laughs) like, 10 years ago, I had a Kids in the Hall Tumblr called, I believe, Women of Kith. (laughs) And I just took, like, hundreds of screenshots of all the female characters on the Kids in the Hall. And and some of them got reblogged thousands of times. The Sizzler Sisters ones were always very popular, naturally. Does that still live? It must be alive. Oh, yeah, I'm sure it's out there. Oh, my goodness. I was in the, like, Whovian corner of Tumblr back in my Tumblr day. Kids of the Hall came later, but I would love to see that, Sarah. Totally. This is beautiful. 
So Jill, thank you so much. We were we were going to cover Go, and I had said something about Go on Twitter, and you were and you immediately were there with a Go response, and I was like, cool, we have someone to cover Go with. We have a winner. We have no nothing against Go. Go will be covered on the show, but I think I think we got a little too esoteric with our holiday read. We got a little too like avant-garde and abstract with our holiday movies. So we needed a movie that was solidly in the holiday sphere. So we, we wanted to talk about an explicitly a movie that has more than just like passing nods to Christmas in it. And uh, and again, go go will get covered. But thank you so much for pivoting with us. What is your relationship to and with the movie Gremlins? Well, uh, yes, I, I, as I was telling Alex, when when he pitched Gremlins to me, I just had this mm-hmm. memory of watching it on TV as a kid. And I was too young, so I only saw it as like something scary. Yeah. And I specifically remember when the Gremlins rewired that like what is it even like a stair machine (laughs) from from my childhood eyes it was just like these ugly scary little gremlins rewiring this uh what i thought at the time was this poor grandma old cat lady and just like rocket launched her to her death (laughs) so i that like really stood out for me as a way to kill grandma <laughs> like cancer was a given heart disease yeah gremlin rigor that was a given <laughs> what if the gremlins can shrink themselves down and become plaque in her arteries oh my gosh <laughs> it's so refreshing now i was i was on the same page because that that character who does get killed in that way she looks different and i, I the, the way she does in the rest of the movie and i never put two and mm. two together as to who it was when i was a kid and now that I know they murder a landlord, I'm like, it's great. The gremlins are pro-labor. Like, I, I fully <laughs> see their perspective. And that's the other thing about this. For this to be like a movie feelings pod, the fact is my feelings have changed so much on this movie. Coming back to it mm-hmm. as an adult, I really enjoyed it. It's so smart. I love when a movie for kids is also really for adults. Like mm-hmm. this was Chris Columbus, one of his first big Hollywood movies that he got to write. And wow. it was just so satisfying to see them skewer the, their own tropes of like sappy holiday movie or mm-hmm. dramatic monologue. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I can't wait to get to all of that. It's so it's rich in all of the above. But before mm-hmm. we do that, Sarah Marshall, yes. Can you please take us on a journey through what's the town called? It's not Keyser Falls. It's uh, Kingston Falls. Keyser Falls was next to Cornish, where I grew up, so I always oh, okay. conflated the two. So can that you? That sounds dirty. Yeah, uh, it is. I got into a Keyser Falls, man. <laughs> can you take us on a journey through Kingston Falls? Oh boy, I'll try. Yeah, Kingston Falls is a lovely all-American small town where everyone's xenophobic, obviously. And as I was saying to you, Alex, this movie pairs beautifully with our previous selection, Die Hard, because they're both 80s movies about xenophobia at Christmas. (laughs) And in Die Hard, it's about Japan and also arguably about refighting World War II because there's also Germans in the mix. And in this one, it's about fear of Chinese imports and... What a Christmas film. (laughs) (laughs) And all of the above. Yes, I'm I'm excited. And so basically it opens with Hoyt Axton, singer of My, 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 My Mitchell, 
going to Chinatown, I guess, in New York City and getting a mogwai, which he steals from a wise old Chinese man. I'm just saying what happens. I'm very sorry. And he takes it home to give as a present to his son, Billy, who is truly one of the most useless protagonists who has ever graced the screen, <laughs> regularly upstaged by a mogwai. <laughs> and a 10-year-old Corey Feldman. And his own mother. <laughs> his mother's so good. She's the only one who does something. Yes, she's so good. <laughs> Phoebe Cates also kind of has her act together. The men in this are just like useless and a half, man. <laughs> would venture to say that might even be a theme. But so he brings the mogwai home. The rules are that you can't get it wet. You can't expose it to bright light. You can't feed it after midnight. Naturally, Billy does all of these things. And when the water touches Gizmo, his cute little mogwai, who is so adorable, voiced by Howie Mandel, <laughs> all these little tiny like Tribbles pop out of his back and become other mogwai, including one with a big stripe, who's their leader. And then when he feeds them after midnight, Gizmo like declines to eat because he's like, no, no, I don't want to turn into a gremlin. But the other ones do. And they turn into gremlins. And then they take over the town because they get into a pool and multiply. And then they all decide to watch Snow White at a theater. And Billy and his love interest, Phoebe Cates, have to destroy the gremlins with Gizmo's help. And that's really the plot. Merry Christmas. And then they return Gizmo to his Chinese dad. And he's like, you're not ready for Mogwai's. Maybe you will be someday. In 1990, will we make Gremlins 2 the new back? <laughs> I vaguely remember this, but the way that they end up with, with Gizmo is not because Billy's ready, but because that shop gets destroyed in a gentrification move. <laughs> of course, of course. It's always money. Billy's dad full on stole Gizmo <laughs> also. Mm -hmm. Maybe if he just like chilled and got to know a bit more about the lore, like the Mogwai lore, he'd know that Mogwai is Cantonese for demons <laughs> and other related words of evil. That could have been the biggest tell. I do love how chill everyone is about being like, I've never seen one of these before. That's fine. <laughs> Let's, how do we profit off of it? <laughs> yeah. First question. Don't even worry about it. This is the same attitude we had toward radium. <laughs> Sarah, before we dive into to everything, how what, what is your relationship with the Kremlins? I hadn't seen this before three years ago when I watched this with my guest, Rachel Verona Cody and her husband who are big fans of the Gremlins rag. <laughs> and it was one of the only nice things that happened to me in 2020. That was a big year. Yeah. And so coming back to it, I'm just like, wow, like this movie, that was the first time I'd seen it. This is now the second time I've seen it. It's not a part of my childhood or anything like that. But I just find it to be like delightfully absurd. You're just like, wow, somebody like, I mean, also, just think of the work that went into it. It feels like this was like a triumph of practical effects. And it's oh, like totally. so many man hours for something so unhinged. It's just very exciting to me. Yeah, Joe Dante, who made this movie, is cool and just makes makes movies that 
are like tactile in this way. And I really, I really appreciate that. Yes, I think I, those gremlins are so gross. Oh. When Stripe rides the bike, the tricycle, like it doesn't look, it looks great for like a standalone puppet thing. I was like, it looks like he's really riding a bike. That's adorable. Nothing, no amount of CGI or Michael Bay movie budget hits like real ooze. That stuff is gross. <laughs> To see that level of practical effects, the real smoke burbling from the pool as Stripe has an orgy with himself, like, it's just amazing. It's so beautiful. I am pro-practical effects. Oh, yeah. They put in their hands into those gremlin asses to make them move. I don't know how puppetry works. It's like that, yeah. The scenes before we get the gremlins, the father gets ejaculated on by his own invention like at least three times. Like they're like, this is going to get sticky. Like we're letting you know right up in advance. That's true. It, it was interesting watching this movie. I haven't seen seen it in decades, although I feel like in my life I've seen it a lot. And it was interesting seeing it, seeing its subtext, seeing additional subtext, etc. Because like I obviously like as a child, like I just read this exclusively as text and didn't realize how much of a parody and how much of a like self send up it was and how much this was like, you know, movie guys uh, nodding to the movies they loved when they were kids, but also pointing out the absurdity it was. And it was like great to be able to capture all of those jokes finally. My like hit blunt one take of that is that it was almost a way of like not only shouting out the movies that influenced the filmmakers, but like aligning gremlins with like a Christmas classic, a horror classic mm. at the same time, like putting it mm. on their level. Mm. Totally. Yeah, I noticed that this movie like features a lot of movies. And even in the science teacher scene, we get this like old educational film about blood. I love I love that. I like I remember all of that very vividly. And also, I think that I have had it in my memory that I saw Snow White in the theater on a, like one of the Disney re-releases. And I think I might not have. I think I might just remember the scene from Gremlins. Like, I'm pretty sure I have internalized a scene from this movie as my own core memory, which mm. is is a fun thing to realize in real time. Real, remember the fallibility of memory. Yeah. Sarah, you know about that. Merry You've heard Christmas. about the fallibility of memory, huh? I have heard of it. I have. It comes up a lot because we all like to believe we can remember most things that happened to us, but it turns out that memory is unreliable as heck. Where should we where should we go, Sarah? Can we just talk about, as I mentioned, how this movie pairs with Die Hard and the sense of like, there's nothing like xenophobia for Christmas. This was the thing that I found fascinating about about watching this now is, again, like having grown up on the text. And when I was a kid, the text was Gizmo is cute. The gremlins are scary and fun. The chicken they keep in the refrigerator is perplexing. Uh, you know, the action sequences that they have at the end are fantastic. Like all of that stuff, all of the like the low hanging stuff that's still like is extremely exciting. The subtext of the movie is that foreign made anything is scary. Yeah. <laughs> It'll tear apart your town. There is like the possibility of a model citizen, which is gizmo. And then there's all of these these gremlins, which follow like tropes in one way or another. But I can't tell how conscious the movie is of 
what it's doing there. Yeah. Steven Spielberg, producer of the movie, certainly had issues with uh, Asian representation in the past. Exhibit A, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Short round deserved better. He's also, as we've talked about in the Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark uh, episode, like, I don't know how much of it is conscious. I don't know how much of it is lampooning. I don't know how much of that matters. Right. And this movie certainly feels like a Twilight Zone episode, which is fitting because Joe Dante directed a segment of the Twilight Zone movie. Which segment? I can't recall. Which was his? I can't remember. I feel like it could have been the terror at 30,000 feet one, but I'm not sure. On the one hand, I want to say that there's like satirical elements to like all that 80 xenophobia, like right off the bat when Billy's trying to start his his car and who is the character? Is it Mr. Fetterman? Who's like, ah, the yes. foreign made things. It's yeah. so good. And then obviously at that moment, at that moment, I knew he was bound for death. <laughs> <laughs> That's the kind of like hateful dialogue where it's like, oh, you know, this guy's going to get it. But then the epilogue of the movie is that is that narrator again going, now if your TV or electronics are acting up, it might be one of those foreigner gremlins. Like, that's basically the gist of it. So I was like, come on. Yeah. yeah, and at some point Billy says that like M- Mr. Fetterman was right. He's like, it, it turns out all of the crazy ramblings of our MAGA neighbor were entirely correct. Right. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> Christmas is like a very conservative time i guess is what we're learning it's for family and family looks a very particular way jill as a as a a a person who represents a nationality of people americans are inherently skeptical of did you feel personally attacked by this movie and by that do you mean canadians yes (laughs) as a marginalized american or a canadian no Uh. kidding no this this movie screamed like american commercialization to me not just because of like the surrounding like one of my favorite words in uh, around conversations of film is toyetic which is when a movie is designed or characters are designed based on oh we gotta sell all those plushies of gizmos oh yeah that's so great toyetic with an e yeah wow i love it like mimetic, but with toys. Totally. So like the Ewoks are lambasted for being toyetic. Yeah. I'm a gizmo defender. He's cute as hell. I don't care if it's for toys. But within the movie, the characters themselves, like Billy's dad is all about inventing crap that doesn't need to exist and doesn't even work that well. There's uh, this, oh my God, we got to make them Peltzer pets. Yes, like instantly seeing the transactional or commercial potential of the Mogwai uh, is very American to me. Crazy. And this was around the time of the Cold War as well. So very, very clever that the villainry wasn't Russian for this time. Hmm. Like, wow, that's a big swing to not be about Russia. But yeah, like so much of it felt like to me is a commentary on... um, commercialization especially towards the end where we have the the elderly man say ah this is what you americans always do with natural resources you just like go ham and ruin it so as a canadian i'm like "Mm, yeah that checks out right let me say as well that canada is just like america's little brother who still does the exact same colonial environmental uh, plundering shit but like we just don't get told off by mom as much because you guys are our big brother, so your your mistakes are more noticeable. But Canada, guilty for 
exact same thing yeah we're so loud about it well this is like is sarah to your point about bringing up the parallels of uh die hard is like Gre gremlins reads a little like that where it's like what is gremlins ideology in that like we have the judge reinhold character who feels like he's being set up to be like a villain he's a 23 year old branch manager and then he just disappears he's set up to be the bad guy and it's like you know it's the early 80s and he says the world is changing you got to be tough which is like a big like like all good filmmakers these people seem to hate reagan but like the rest of their ideology <laughs> seems like it may be it may be uh, uh reagan-esque but like it also there was just like such a tear there's like a bit of a joke around like foreign made or japanese made parts in um back to the future so yeah. like this was just like very much a part of like pop culture fabric and in Fatal Attraction, there's like a xenophobia against Japan theme in Fatal Attraction. And you're like, why? But then to Jill's point at the end, we get, you know, obviously there are issues which is sort of like the one dimension of this old man is he's like a wise, quote, wise Asian man. <laughs> this was like very much an American disposition that ended up getting them into the trouble. It was not the inherent like chaos of the creature. It was like the irresponsibility of ownership, which is a really interesting way to end. Yeah. And like the, the other thing that happens so often in movies like this was gong sound. Sound, like gong sound near Asian character. Oh, mm -hmm. so bad. And I love, I kind of love this father because like there's this scene where Billy accidentally, again, just squirts him with one of his inventions. And the father in any other circumstance, including my life, would have just yelled at him. And like he didn't. He was like, nah, it's fine. I'm a fuck up. <laughs> I love that, yeah. The father goes to the gremlin shop. He's doing a sales pitch. He says, let's say you have a real case of dragon breath. And then there's the gong sound. And I, what I can't tell is, was this filmmaker doing gong sound as joke on Asians on screen, which happens in uh, 16 Candles? Yeah. Or was it like white person says stupid thing realizes he said stupid thing it wasn't actually stupid but it's his racial bias that makes it stupid and then takes it back and re-delivers what he said i tend to think it's the former thank you okay cool yeah yeah i don't think 1984 was clever enough to be ironically racist i think it was just definitely racist right like to your point this was the year of long duck dong yes it sure was your question, Alex, I think like when this movie ends up being progressive, it's purely by accident or for comedic value. Like the cops dismissing Billy's very valid concerns about unlikely creatures ruining town. Those cops do nothing at all. <laughs> oh my God, a classic. I was gonna ask, cause I was trying to look up half-heartedly though. I was like, why, how does Howie Mandel famously a grown man make those voices like what where does his gift come from so it's just all canadians can do that you can all sound like gizmo yeah i think it's like the, the fluoride and some other junk in our water i don't know it's the socialism <laughs> i used to watch his stand-up when i was a kid and was he like carrot top before carrot top was carrot top it was like proppy i don't know i know him as the guy from saying elsewhere Oh, I forgot that he that is even a space he occupied. He was like very like manic and like proppy. Like a fast moving Joel Hodgson. <laughs> yes, that would beautifully say. That must be hard to be a prop comic when you have germophobia. Like you have to like basically like, <laughs> yeah. like 
rub all those down with alcohol like after every set like i i can see why he pivoted to fist bumps and deal or no deal <laughs> i met him at one point i got to give him a fist bump Aww. oh my god he's <laughs> very kind very kind man that's like being knighted in canada howie mandel fist bump <laughs> <laughs> And like, I don't want, like, I know that this movie is like important, has like an important nostalgic place in a lot of people's hearts, including myself. And by no means I want to be like, hey, guess what? Sorry. The only times it accidentally, the only times it gets it right is accidental. But I think you're right. I'm pretty sure that like, <laughs> they, they were never like, let's make a good point about the cops. It's not trying is the thing. It's not trying to do the right thing. It's like, hey, you know what's scary? Chinatown, you know, <laughs> it's like, yeah, that's fine. And that just is something that people believed in a much more unchecked way in the 80s. Well, and, to the, and I didn't know until we were covering this movie, I didn't know about this monologue from Tessa Thompson in, is it Dear White People? I think, I think that's what it is about the tropes that the gremlins fall into when they're like taking over the town are essentially all white America's ideas of what black people will do if they come to their town in mass. Oh, they'll all go see Snow White. Yeah. It's, <laughs> they'll smoke three cigarettes at a time while tearing a bar up. And then in the second one, there'll be a girl one and she'll be hot. <laughs> Feminism wins. We have a lady gremlin. Yeah. <laughs> 1990, the year of the woman. <laughs> Outside of the fact that like this movie is made to be both like satisfyingly adorable and satisfyingly gross. Like why did this become the movie it did? It released the same weekend as Ghostbusters. Wow, what a time. What a time to be a child. I read a review of, of the commentary track. So one of the things that Joe Dante said that gave them the advantage when it came out in New York was Ghostbusters It didn't initially do well in New York because everyone was angry at the movie for shutting down traffic so frequently when they were producing <laughs> wow. it. So in its opening weekend, <laughs> Gremlins beat Ghostbusters in New York. Can you imagine? <laughs> <laughs> but why do you think it did? Why do you think it did so well outside of the like outside of the fact that it, it is holiday ish? Didn't shut down traffic in New York. One of the choices I read about was that Chris Columbus initially Gizmo was going to turn into Stripe, like the big contrast <gasps> of ooh the little cutie booty. Such a Great edit. Yeah, becoming evil. And Spielberg, I read, was the one to say, no, the audience needs Gizmo, like, all the way through. But, like, I love Gizmo. I think of course. Gremlins excels at contrast. So the humor is heightened by how out of place it is next to, like, murdering an elderly woman. And then the horror is heightened by all of these softer moments of, I don't know, Gizmo singing and, and whatnot. The last movie I saw that to do very well and was acclaimed for similar reasons was Barbarian. How all of a sudden, like the scariest scary then turned into like rapid cut to a joke. And I think those contrasts really help the pacing of Gremlins. I was delighted by this movie all the way through as an adult. There wasn't one like, check my phone moments at all. Uh, the sweet parts are very sweet. That I, like, who wouldn't want to cuddle up with Gizmo after watching some old tiny movies? Like, count me in. Yeah. I, Sarah, I forget what it was even for, but I saw Sarah be interviewed for a, like a 90s overview documentary and they brought out 
a Furby, mm -hmm. which was so clearly influenced by the design of, of Gizmo. Yeah. And Sarah was brought to tears <laughs> by being in proximity of the Furby. Like this character design is so, yes. this is designed to be loved the second you find one abandoned on the street and uh, bring it into your home and internalize the rules. <laughs> I just never thought I'd hold a Furby again, you know? It was like Rosebud. Um, and yeah, they're so wonderful. Yes, I love Gizmo so much, and I love it when he sings most of all. It's like the cutest thing ever. <laughs> I think that this is like an art, like an was an artificially constructed species. I don't know anything about that. I don't necessarily care about what exists in these books, but I am curious just from what was presented on screen, like what is the Mogwai's culture? Like, why does it have a song? What is it? Is it its national anthem? Like, is it a lullaby they all know? Like, what is, I mean, it's obviously not a national anthem because we don't know about the nation, but like, what? <laughs> what the fuck is going on in is, are they from world? a planet out there somewhere <laughs> is it underground are do they, they related to the ewoks <laughs> do they have hairy tongues to clean themselves because they can't get wet do they want to get, like i don't understand do they not want to get wet so the path that the gremlins take is that Billy accidentally spawns a bunch of new little mogwai and then he's immediately is like oh this is great that we can Everyone is like, we can make more Mogwai and they don't have a second thought about it. And like, what do we think about that? I do still, despite all of the representation being capital V, capital B, very bad. I, I do think that like the end wrapping note about being like, you guys, you fucked up. Like it was like, you guys did all this. You stole the thing. You acted irresponsibly. You showed it television. Like this was your bad. And I do. And again, to the, to the point of the things that seem to Jill, like very American, it's not surprising to me at all that like opportunity trumps morality or even just like smart thinking oh always and it's like pairing the intelligent thought of like maybe we shouldn't exploit a resource as soon as we discover it with so don't buy foreign goods folks good night and it's like wait what <laughs> yeah the power of that monologue kind of gets undercut by the ribbon of xenophobia wrapping the gift big time right and this was like at a time when Speaking of anxiety about Japanese businesses to connect to Die Hard again, Americans were worried about Japanese cars taking over American markets because they were better. Um, <laughs> and there's just nothing to be done about that. If something is like better and cheaper then like, we, I don't know. But and Alex, what were you telling me? I found this very interesting. Yeah, and I read this long ago in the book American Theocracy that was that was talking about this exact xenophobia. And one of the things that was happening around this time was Japanese automakers were good at making cars and people were terrified of that. And part of the reason why you could get a great car made so inexpensively was because Japanese workers had socialized healthcare. Like the, the cost of healthcare didn't play into like what wasn't as high for the corporation as it was in the United States, which like had this whole separate apparatus and that then included sort of labor fights, et cetera, et cetera. And so like a lot of the things that we ended up hating the Japanese for with regard to their advances and was created by our approach to business. <laughs> Surprise! 
<laughs> Listen, all roads lead to socialized medicine, baby. Amen. This this is the movie, and I, I, I'm excited to hear your takes, but like really just what I love about this movie and what this movie dares to do. It, and I say this, I say this not even jokingly, is like this is one of the first movies I ever saw outside of like, you know, Silent Night, Deadly Night that was like, you know what? Like actually the holidays aren't great for everybody. At the time, I feel like it was cool for a character in a movie to not be, have the holiday spirit. Now it's a requirement for every Hallmark movie. <laughs> as soon as, as Billy's girlfriend was going into her eh, Christmas blows, I was like playing Hallmark bingo. Is it a dead parent? Is it a tragedy at Christmas? <laughs> it's so, so right away, I'm just like rolling my eyes. And the intent of this monologue was satirical. So I appreciate just how corny it is and it's like whose father is climbing in a real chimney for a christmas surprise you're not <laughs> dick van dyke no one is like sorry to to victim blame santa but what a terrible idea and you ruined christmas <laughs> by having your corpse smelling up the chimney for days and then and then it's the button that kills me when she goes, and that's how I found out Santa wasn't real. <laughs> that is just... Wow. By smelling the corpse of my father. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. It's so over the top in a way that it feels like the eight, the 80s didn't quite know what to do with. Yeah. I had read in the review of the commentary that this was like extremely contentious for the studio. I like bet. the studio had a very difficult time letting this happen. It's so weird. Have you ever seen Joe Dante talk, Sarah? No. He's like a adorable little extremely still extremely animated Italian man, like American Italian. And he's just like, like he's zany, like he's exactly like you would think the person who loved making these these practical effects mm-hmm. and loved putting this monologue in a movie like it fits so perfectly and i can't imagine being like any of the parents that were like well i guess we'll take our kids to this movie that steven spielberg produced it should be great it looks like it's cute there's like a little teddy bear in it this is fantastic and then (laughs) sitting next to your child taking this movie in and then seeing this fucking monologue must have been amazing (laughs) you're just like Cover your ears, Timmy. Don't listen to the girl. I love, as a big time troll, I love the trolling of having, and that's how I found out Santa wasn't real in a children's movie. Yes. I mean, they gotta learn someday. It's really diabolical. Well, I guess, like, I do think that this movie was. I, I, again, we talked, we talked a bit about this in the Santa Claus episode, Sarah, about not quite knowing what you should do with Santa mythology in movies that mm-hmm. are for adults or having like a movie that has like horror elements, which this movie does. Like, this is just essentially a horror movie that has like a handful of like edits and like a little bit more restraint. So like children could watch it, but like, was this movie even for children, even though, even though it's clearly setting itself up for merchandise? <laughs> I mean, this movie would have scared the shit out of me as a child and a lot of other children. And then a lot of other children would and did like it. But I, I think it's just for the unhinged at heart, really, whatever your age. <laughs> it's one of those classic, like, 80s, like, family ageless movies, like Splash. <laughs> yeah, what else is in that category, Sarah? Big, 
Splash is a great example of big. Yeah, that's fantastic. The Goonies, arguably. Yeah. Ghostbusters, Back to the Future, like movies that were like, and the Indiana Jones movies, movies that were like, you take your family, they're kind of aimed at everybody. They're like, everybody, come see it. Our audience is everybody. Yeah. Yeah, Avatar. a lot of You're right. <laughs> Weirdly. Guys, a lot of 80s movies, um, like you mentioned, Ghostbusters came out at the same time. Like kids were in way more danger and fun in the 80s. It, it hit a point in the 90s where like stranger danger and Amber Alerts mentality took over. And then it was like, oh, we can't have kids in danger unless they're like in an anime. Mm. So for when Stranger <laughs> Things came out, it felt very novel for for a contemporary show to have children in danger and facing monsters in like a genuinely scary way. And it was just totally a throwback to that 80s era of like Goonies and Gremlins and adventures and death being real things like an eight-year-old or uh, Corey Feldman could get into. And honestly, that it goes back to that point I made about contrast. Like it makes the horror feel more horrific and the triumphs of the characters feel more heartwarming yeah. when you have like, innocent kids involved. So my platform is basically put children in danger again for our entertainment. <laughs> I would like to see a child contend with death and a decaying father in their chimney more often for my pleasure. I agree. Me too. I also would connect this movie with Child's Play as a movie about the danger in it toys and Christmas consumerism. As we may recall, Child's Play was able to take place, the events of Child Play, because a dying serial killer used a voodoo ritual to place his soul into a good guy doll, which was then sold by a random guy who found it on the street and decided to resell it to Catherine Hickson, who brought it into the house of her child, who then was framed for murder. <laughs> <laughs> I do think that Gremlins is like right on the money in terms of like how consumerism itself will destroy us. But yes, for sure. Know, it gets framed in the worst possible way. Right next to our Cold War fears, right next to our fears of uh, Asians broadly, uh, and by our, I'm talking about white Americans, mm -hmm. um, was voodoo. We goddamn, like voodoo was going to get Evidently. us. It came up in movie plots left and right. It was in songs. Like voodoo was a concern. Serpent in the Rainbow. Yes. <laughs> Weekend of Bernie's 2. Yep. Satanic Panic. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. A lot of totally. voodoo in middle America in the 80s. There was so much concern about but Yeah, just like like anything that looked like foreign and not white. Mm -hmm. And not Protestant for that matter. And not Protestant. Exactly. It was truly a surprise to revisit this classic and then be like, oh, oh God. Happens a lot with 80s movies. Not even subtext. Not even, it wasn't even subtext. It's like, yeah, and it's like one of those movies where you're like, well, surprisingly, there was no homophobia in it. Right. It's like, it's always, if it's not hitting like all the key points of like fat phobia, homophobia, hates women, xenophobia, a bunch of other things, then like it'll be heavily weighted toward a few of them. Like I was watching Miss Congeniality the other night, which is like a very fun movie, mostly. But then there's like a part I completely forgotten where they're trying to decide which FBI agent will go undercover in the Miss USA pageant. And so all the men are like looking at naked or like swimsuit wearing simulation photos 
of their female colleagues at the FBI with the implication that like they had naked photos taken of themselves when they joined the FBI <laughs> and their male colleagues are just like looking at them and like heckling them. And I was like, wow, I forgot that happened. I just let that roll off me. I was like, whatever. That's what the world is like, of course. Anyway, Miss Congeniality. Hooray. Just your casual workplace harassment. That totally does happen, too, with um, Jerry at the beginning and and the woman at their, at their workplace where he's just like, hey, why don't you come over to my new apartment? Well, I never even came over to your old apartment. Like, that, that yeah. was a pretty good clapback, <laughs> gotta say. What do we think that Judge Reinhold's apartment looks like? Do we think he has like an aquarium and a shag rug? I know. I think ironically, it's uh, very Asian themed, like like Dirk Diggler in Boogie Nights. Oh, he's got and he's got some Italian polyester. Absolutely. And he's serving up sushi, which is how we spot someone scary and fancy in an '80s movie. He definitely got a couple things from the Sharper Image catalog. I feel like his apartment looks like Patrick Bateman's. Like, it's unusually clean. <laughs> oh, yes. He's only 23. Jack Reinhold has always looked 40 years old. He's going to be a millionaire by the time he's 30 because he's already 40. So that's pretty easy. <laughs> <laughs> Beat the system there. <laughs> One of the things that Joe Dante talked about doing uh, while making this movie is you see all these Steven Spielberg nods. Like there's the billboard for the radio guy who's very popular in Kingston Falls to the point where he assumes that anyone who's coming to the door is a fan that wants to talk to him. Mm -hmm. But you see the billboard for him and it's Indiana Jones themed. You see these movies on the marquee and they're like nods to Steven Spielberg movies. And, and this is, I feel like this is like real good film school shit. Joe Dante said that he included those knowing that Spielberg would be looking at the dailies and he wanted to give Spielberg something to feel happy about so it would make him more likely to approve scenes. That's amazing. I love that. There was also that great moment where um, the gremlin that's in the high school lab is trying to prevent Billy from warning his mom about the shit about to go down. So the gremlin is cutting the phone wire that Billy's using. It actually says phone home. Oh no it doesn't. That's an easy callback. That was Oh my god, that is such a Spielberg please clap. Also, Billy's mom does an amazing job where she kills two gremlins by appliance, which is wonderful. Oh my gosh, I've wanted to talk about Billy's mom. She's the MVP of this movie. We need more Mm -hmm. Billy's mom. They were supposed to kill Billy's mom, and I'm glad they didn't. Right? The Christmas tree scene was supposed to be her last tango. It would have been a tremendous bummer. Yeah, Billy's mom, to to both of your points, Billy's mom and um, Kate are the only competent players in this movie. Billy's mom also has a great attitude for her husband being a loser. I think the great attitude is Stockholm Syndrome, Alex. (laughs) (laughs) She can do so much better. I mean, I I also must point out that, like, many Americans have taken COVID as an opportunity to be like, ah... I hate China. And it's like, okay, what a great thing to focus on. Let's not try and save anyone's life or anything. That would be gay. Sarah, are you saying that gremlins are a metaphor for COVID? That it's brought about this new new era of xenophobia? I guess I'm saying that the same philosophy that brought us gremlins has brought us the United States' response to COVID. We see gremlins and everything. 
for all of the issues that we have rightfully brought up in this movie, I am I'm going to choose to acknowledge that they're all there and a lot of them are harmful, but I'm going to choose the message I'm attaching to the movie being the one delivered to us by the shop owner who's like, you guys did this. I told you you couldn't handle it and look at you. Yeah. I took one look at your fucking toothpaste dispenser and I realized that you should not have a mogwai. It's a great indictment of American imperialism followed by, and make sure you buy that gizmo toy because he's so cute. <laughs> and buy the American made gizmo toy. Just kidding. There's no such thing. <laughs> the American made one is three times as much money and real flimsy and doesn't even exist because why bother it makes me curious like I know that this movie wasn't intentionally an indictment along those lines but Sarah like I'm not going to give anything away along these lines but we were talking about the menu and the opening of this mm -hmm. and there's like a real indictment of sort of wealthy assholes basically and I'm always curious about the actors who maybe themselves are wealthy assholes mm -hmm. who have to play in a movie that's commenting on wealthy effet assholes being wealthy effet assholes. Like, what do you, do you think that they know or in there? Like I'm in this movie and I'm a phony or oh, I don't think they know. There's no, always, no there's always an asshole shittier than you. <laughs> don't you think? I've, oh, I've noticed <laughs> all of them. They're all shittier than me. <laughs> You're like, I'm not, it's not about an asshole like me. It's about a shitty asshole. And you're it's like, about oh, other kind of assholes. yeah. And one other thing I just want to make sure we touch on before we, before we talk about daddies is I think Corey Feldman is gold in this movie. Mm -hmm. Corey Feldman as, always. as a person who is like on tour now and is being d documented for being kind of, you know, sad because of how how he presents on stage, even though he's just doing his fucking thing. I feel like he's got a lot of conspiracy theories going also. Yeah, and it was, and it was also just devoured by a terrible machine in the 80s that killed his best friend, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera. Which uh, Friday the 13th is he in? Mm -hmm. He's just gold like he's abs before he turns into one of the Corys and like the machine does what it does to him like he's so great yeah he's so good in this movie everyone's at their best when they're a chubby little boy when you think about it and, and not unlike Rushmore we have a presumably what 15 or 16 well, how old is Billy is he even a man what is, is he is he a man I can't oh, he tell looks he like is. he's like 18 or 20 to me he's pretty filled out his best friend is 10 years old yeah, classic. Why not? Just a thing that used to happen. I read that it was because Billy was originally uh, supposed to be younger and Corey Feldman was ah. cast as Billy's oh, okay. pal. And then they decide, you know what, let's have Billy at the making out age. Hmm. So they, they decided very kindly to keep um, Corey Feldman on board as Billy's just like eight-year-old best friend, even though Billy's in 16. I love the making out age. He goes to the high school or he's friends with the biology teacher. Also, like, what credentials does that guy have to dissect a gremlin or whatever? It does, doesn't matter. Um, and he doesn't dissect it. He's the science guy. It's a very small town. He's the science guy. It's just the, the most advanced guy they know in Kingston Falls. Is Billy a bank teller? Yeah, I think so. So you're in high school, but you're also at the bank full time? <laughs> I don't think he is in high school. I think he's, like, graduated and, like, just is going back to high school to like chill with his friend, the science. That was my read of it anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Every, yeah. yeah, totally. The relationships make figuring out 
who is what difficult. Like he's friends with this science teacher. He's friends with an eight to 10 year old boy. He's a bank teller. Maybe you would think that uh, he heard the story about the Santa Claus situation with um, with Kate. But, you know, maybe that happened in Rhode Island and then they moved here. They had to move because the memories were too. It was hard to live in that house. Hard to get the stink out of the um, chimney. Any departing thoughts about this uh, this classic before we uh, talk about daddies? I am really glad I revisited it as an adult. I think you were all in the money that it was a style of movie where you could take a kid to see it and you could be an adult who really enjoys it. I think that also informed its success, similar to Ghostbusters. It's like mm-hmm. the movie that's scary enough for everyone, but cute enough for everyone. And I really was impressed with it more than I thought it would be. And of course, it has all the issues that we've talked about, like do a shot anytime we've said xenophobia on this pod, but- Or don't, because you could pass out. And die. (laughs) Truly. Uh, But yeah, I I really quite liked it. And I want to see more movies where kids have to face the ooky spooky part of life. We know in Jill, if you if you're unfamiliar, we have this part of the show where we talk about who the the father was in the the movie, and then we leave it to everyone to come up with who their choice of the daddy was in the movie. So we do know that Bill, and you can interpret that however you'd like. So we do know that we do know that Billy's dad was his father. So he's a father. My, 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 my gremlin. Who, in your view, is the daddy? This might be, like, I hope this doesn't uh, get me canceled. Nothing controversial. I don't know how old Gizmo is, if I'm lusting after, like, a child mogwai. He's probably 400 years old. (laughs) Okay. Okay, great. Specifically when he's ready to save the day. He's remembering that movie. It's, like, pumping him up. He looks so determined. I think, to me, that is the (sighs) character and moment that embodies being daddy. Save the day, Gizmo, is daddy to me. Mm, yeah. That's wonderful. That's a great, it's a great take. And, and that, that said, I, I, the Gremlins 2 parodies its own ending in Gremlins 1. And I want to say it before someone decides that they need to tell us that this is the case. Gr- Gremlins 2 is like a postmodern masterpiece. It does seem like it's smarter than Gremlins 1 along the lines of these themes. So I do hope that we get to talk about it at some point in the future. Gremlins 2 feels like one of those carte blanche movies like Freaks where they're like, you can do whatever you want. And Joe Dante's like, okay, you said I could. You can't say you don't like it. I'm going to say it's our it's our shop owner. He was responsible in the beginning and he's responsible at the end. And he really was there to remind us that it was not actually the Asian menace Mm -hmm. that was responsible for the problem. It was irresponsible engagement or treatment of our natural resources. Yeah, the movie makes it clear for one whole scene that white people are the problem. And then it's like, never mind, forget that, that we said that. My daddy in this is Phoebe Cates because she delivers the weirdest monologue of all time and she's wonderful in this, as she is in everything. She has three extremely memorable roles from this decade and I appreciate it. Oh wow, what else is Phoebe Cates in? 
She was she starred with Judge Reinhold in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Oh, great! She was in Drop Dead Fred, um, and just like her, the entire that entire movie, if you see it, is memorable. And then her monologue in this is fantastic. She's Ms. Moving in Stereo. Yes, she is. All right, everybody, that is it for this week's episode of You Are Good. Thank you so much to Jill Krajewski for being a part of this thing. We are so happy you are here to talk about gremlins with us. Thank you to Ethan Satiawan, who edited this episode. Thank you to Carolyn Kendrick, who also edited this episode and produced it. Thank you for uh, being part of this whole thing. We really appreciate you. Remember, there's an extra episode this week about while you were sleeping. And there's a director's cut version of that episode for uh, anyone who is supporting us on Patreon or Apple podcast subscriptions. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for doing that over there. We appreciate it. Find us on Twitter. Find us on Instagram. Thanks to Fresh Lesh for providing the beats that make this show sound so sweet. We really appreciate everything you do, Lesh. And that's it. Take care of yourselves. We're talking about Ghostbusters 2, one of the great New Year's Eve movies with our fabulous friend Candace Opper next week. So keep an eye out for that or an ear, I guess, is more appropriate. That's all we got. Thanks, everybody. You are good. 